a maskil of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me, afflicted and close to death from my youth up? I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Father God, we pray this morning, worshiping you, praising you. Lord, it's so easy to do it in the good times. Lord, but you are God in the good and in the bad, in the light and in the dark. And Lord, we pray today that you would teach us how to praise you and honor you in those dark times. Lord, I pray that you would use Tony to preach your word and to teach us so that we would know how to make sure we are honoring you even in the dark times of life. Lord, we love you, and it's through your son's name we pray. Amen. I love hearing your voices uh, greeting one another and talking. And uh, I'm glad we had that time to maybe just lighten the mood a little bit because we're going to look at a lament this morning. And maybe you sensed it even as Adam was reading it. This is, this is a heavy psalm that we're looking to today. And so let me just invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the passage that Adam just read, Psalm 88. We're in our series, Summer in the Psalms, and today we come to book three and to a lament. And in fact, it's probably the most lament-laden psalm in the Psalter. The psalmist, Heman, the Ezraite, gives us a lot of issues that he's dealing with. A lot of issues that are lamentable. And you know how it is. I mentioned this a few weeks ago when I started this series. You know, some of the psalms, as you look at them, they're like rah, rah, go get them speeches. And they're, they're motivational and they're inspirational. And then there are some psalms like this one, like Psalm 88, that are more introspective. They are a dose of cold water and realism. And you can feel, as you read Psalm 88, you can feel the psalmist ache with pain. He, he bleeds all over the page. 
as he's writing this song. And you might ask yourself, if, you know, as you're reading Psalm 88 or as Adam was reading that, right, you know, why is this psalm even in the Bible? Where's the hope in this psalm? What could we possibly learn from this passage of the Bible? What could we possibly learn from this psalm that is, quite frank, can I say it, depressing? What can we learn here? Here's why I think this is in the Bible. A few weeks back, I was listening to Al Mohler's podcast, The Briefing, and he reported, some of you may have heard this, that there's been a recent upsurge uh, in uh, suicide rates throughout our country. A lot of research was revealed uh, after two prominent and successful American celebrities, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, committed suicide. And so this research came out from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, that 49 out of 50 states in America right now have experienced an increase in suicide rates recently. And in some states like North Dakota, that rate, that increase is as high as 57%. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. It's the second leading cause of death for adolescents aged 15 to 19. And all that research that was revealed doesn't really take into account what we're looking at with the opioid epidemic right now in our country, where uh, there's a lot of death that results from that. And some of that might be suicidal, that might result from self-medication even, for those who are dealing with depression in their own way. You know, all of this is happening right now simultaneously when we have more research than ever on the nature of depression and the reasons for depression. We have more health treatment and medication than ever. There's, there's more research that's dedicated to finding cures for these kinds of mental states. More medication, more treatment allocated than ever before. There's more money spent on treatment than ever before. But all of that hasn't stemmed the tide of this suicide increase. And, you know, when you look on America today, it's not like the Great Depression era we're actually experiencing a lot of economic uh, growth right now. And yet with that, with that more money, more affluence than we've had even 10 years ago, more suicide rates. So j just think about this for a moment and, and try to diagnose the problem here. More money, more research, more medication, more treatment. In many cases, more money, more affluence than we've ever had before, and yet more suicides. Why? Why is that? The case. Well, what I would submit to you this morning is not a medical solution. That's not my field of expertise. What I would submit to you this morning is a spiritual solution. And I would even say that the, the problem is primarily spiritual and ultimately spiritual. We have a nation of people that are increasingly unable to cope with unhappiness. And there's this mentality, you know, with, if you're unhappy, then, then you're a failure, then you're cursed, then there's something wrong with you. You might as well take your own life. We can't cope with unhappiness. We can't cope with despair or sadness or grief. And so we either medicate it away or, God forbid, in too many cases right now, we have issues of suicide. A life, this is the undercurrent, the, the mentality of a lot of Americans right now. A life without perpetual, uninterrupted happiness is a life not worth living. Now into that confusion in our world enters Haman the Ezraite in Psalm 88. A profoundly unhappy song. 
It really is. And he's an unhappy man. And here's a man who is hurting and grieving, possibly even dying, and yet he is processing his unhappiness through his relationship with the Lord. And here's why this psalm is important. You might, you know, there's all these laments in the Psalms. There's laments everywhere. And you might say, well, why did Pastor Tony pick this one, the most depressing one for, it's summer, Pastor Tony, we're supposed to be happy. Why pick this one? Well, I picked this one because this one, and maybe one other, Psalm 39, as you read it, as you get to the end, there's no, there's no uptick. There's no, like, statement of faith. Typically, as you read a lament in the Psalms, it's kind of like this. Life is bad, really, really bad, but God is still sovereign over it, and I'm going to praise him. That's kind of the, the flow of a typical psalm. But this lament is totally different. And it ends, sadly, you know what the last word in this psalm is? Darkness. Machashach in Hebrew. Don't try to say that, you'll, you'll hurt yourself. Darkness. That's, that's how the psalm ends. Darkness. Why? Why? Why is the psalm in the Bible? And is there any remedy for a world and a life that is overcome by darkness? I've entitled this message today, The Case for Unhappiness. And my, day, my goal today is to examine Psalm 88 so that we can learn how to deal with a season of unhappiness in our lives in a way that's healthy and, and God-honoring and doesn't lead to despair uh, and, and, and suicidal thoughts and self-loathing and, and God forbid some of the, the evil that's perpetuated in our world right now as a result of sadness and unhappiness. Here's the reality, and you guys know this. I don't have to convince you of this. We live in a world, a broken world, and sometimes that brokenness spills out on us even as Christians. Is that true? And we feel it, and we experience that. How do you handle that? How do you deal with despair when it comes into your life? How do you process your your sadness, your unhappiness as a Christian? Does being sad mean that you've offended God in some irreversible way? Does being unhappy mean that God is punishing you? You might ask yourself those questions as you're dealing with a season of despair. So let's consider this together. You can go ahead and write this down as number one in your notes. What do you do when darkness dominates in your life? What do you do when everything that you see in life is bleak and drab and colored by shades of black and gray? I'll give you four things today. First of all, number one, when darkness dominates, cry out to the God of your salvation. Cry out. Sometimes that requires an audible cry. Cry out with your voice to the God of your salvation. Let me just point out a few things in the first two verses of this passage, and even the superscription before that passage just so you know, as you look in your Bibles, the, the capitalized portion of that title is actually part of the Hebrew text. So Adam was right to read that, starting with a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. That's part of the scripture here. To the choir master, according to the Mahalath Leonoth, a maskil of Heman the Ezraite. We learn some important things about this psalm in the superscription. First of all, we learn that this psalm is a song. That was meant to be sung. And it was meant to be sung in public. 
A sad song sung in, in public. Think about that. And, and there's a choir master that's referenced here. And it says it's to be sung according to the Mahalath Leonoth. And, and we don't even know what that means. I, I don't know what that means. It's a Hebrew term that it's difficult to ascertain. But we do know that it probably intimates something to do with music, the, the style of the singing, maybe to be sung in the minor key or something along those lines. This is a sad song that's meant to be sung publicly. Can you sing sad songs as a Christian? Can you do that? Yes, you can. And before there was Joni Mitchell, before there was Alanis Morissette, before there was The Cure, and before R.E.M. sang Everybody Hurts, Haman the Ezraite wrote and sang Psalm 88. I know how it is on a lot of contemporary Christian radio stations. Everything's happy, 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 peppy, peppy, peppy. There's no place for sadness. There's no place for lament. But, but just so you know, that's not true in the book of Psalms. That's not true in the Christian life. There's a place for lament. There's a time for sad songs. And, and Hammond gives us one here. Notice also that this song was a psalm of the sons of Korah. The Korahites, just so you know, these were the Levites who were tasked with writing songs for the Israelite community. They were musicians. And there are about 11 psalms in the Psalter that are attributed to the sons of Korah. And some of them are, are really joyful expressions of praise. And some of them, like this one, are really sad. You know how musicians are. They, they have a wide range of emotions, good and bad. And so God utilized this man and his gift to write this sad song. In fact, Haman was referred to as a song leader in First Chronicles. Haman was, was one of these, co, uh, these Korahites, one of these Levites who wrote songs. He was actually referred to as a, as a sage or a wise man in 1 Kings. So Haman and the Korahites wrote a song here that was used for worship and wisdom in the community of Israel. That word maskil has a wisdom nuance to it. And Psalm 88 was part of this collection of songs, happy songs, sad songs that were used publicly corporately for worship. And I, and I think Psalm 88 was written by them and was encouraged in the community to be sung publicly so that people could process through their relationship with the Lord the sadness that they experience and the grief that they're going through. And that truth is conveyed in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. Hammond writes this, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you day and night before you, Oh, Yahweh, he writes, the covenant deity of the Israelites, my God, the God of my salvation, you've saved my soul, and I'm crying out to you right now through my pain. Verse 2, let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to hear me. I just want to point out one thing here. This is the greatest statement of faith in this psalm. Don't lose sight of this statement of faith as the song gets darker and sadder, but I just want you to know that this song is not written by an atheist. This is not the song of an atheist. This is a sad song. This is a, de a depressing song, you might say, but this is not a godless song. This is a man who's trying to process his pain through his relationship with God. And in fact, it's more than just a song. It's a prayer. It's a prayer offered to the Lord. Verse 2, let my prayer come before you, Yahweh, incline your ear to my cry. When darkness dominates Harvest Decatur, and you'll experience periods of darkness in your life, you will. 
When darkness dominates, cry out to the God of your salvation. How might this prayer look like? How might you imitate this prayer in your own life? How might you pray something similar to the Lord as you're going through a season of darkness? Oh, God, be near to me right now. I need you. You ever prayed a prayer like that before? I have. Jesus, answer me when I cry. Reveal to me the struggle that I'm going to clear up the confusion. Help me. I surrender to you. Where are you right now, Jesus? You ever prayed a prayer like that to the Lord? If you haven't before, you will at some point in your life. We all have Psalm 88 moments. And I praise God that he's given us a model here of how to cry out to the Lord in the depth of our despair. I read this last week about a man named Joseph Bailey who wrote the following poem after his teenage son tragically died in a sledding accident. And this is after two of his previous children died as well. It's a man who experienced a lot of grief as a father. And he wrote this out as a prayer to the Lord. And you can, you can feel him ache as he writes this. He says, let me alone, Lord. You've taken from me what I'd give your world. I cannot see such waste that you should take what poor men need. You have a heaven full of treasure. Could you not wait to exercise your claim on this? Oh, spare me, Lord. Forgive that I may see beyond the world, beyond myself, your sovereign plan. Or seeing not may trust you. Spoiler of my treasure. Have mercy, Lord. Here is my quick claim. There's some practical advice here as you experience times of grief and sadness. Don't stop communicating to the Lord in those periods, in those seasons. Keep praying. Keep singing. Keep crying out to the Lord. Keep, keep a communication channel open to Him. Don't stop singing. It's, even if those songs sometimes are sung in the minor key. Don't stop praying and communicating with God in a season of grief. When darkness dominates, cry out to the God of your salvation. Let's keep going. Write this down as number two in your notes. When darkness dominates, pour out before God the depth of your despair. Here's how Hammond does it, starting in verse three. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. Sheol is the abode of the dead in Hebrew thought. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. And you overwhelm me with all of your waves, Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Just a few comments here on these verses. This is a pretty good description of what a person feels like in a state of depression. First of all, they're sapped of strength 
And verse 4, I'm a man who has no strength. That's how a depressed person feels. They lack energy. They lack strength. There, there's constant comparisons with death. There's a fixation on death and darkness, and we see that here with the psalmist. This psalmist feels like the Lord is actively engaged in punishing him. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. And just so you know, I'll, I'll state this. I think there's a fair amount of hyperbole going on here. Heman, he may have been dealing with death. I don't know. He might have been hyperbolizing. I've actually thought about this psalm as a pretty good psalm to use as you're, you're dealing with death. Maybe somebody who's dealing with a terminal disease to pray and lament before the Lord. But even if that's the case, even if he was a man who was truly dying, there's things that are stated here that are exaggerative. For example, he describes those who go down to the grave as those who God remembers no more. Does God remember the dead, though? Does God remember the dead? Yeah, he does. In fact, Psalms 116 verse 15 says this, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I've recited that passage at funerals. Heman knows that. He's a sage. He's a man of God. But, but the point of this psalm, at this point in the psalm, he's showing us how he's, fe- how he's feeling. He's hyperbolizing. I feel like someone who is dead and unremembered, is what he says. I feel like someone who is cut off from your hand. Feelings can be deceiving, I know, but that doesn't make them any less real or any less a part of our experience. William Carter, in his sermon on this psalm, he says, the really pitiful person is not the person with a lot of troubles. No, the pitiful person is the one who pretends that everything is all right when it's not. And he says, I think that's why so many psalms are laments. They teach us how to be honest with God about how we feel. Also notice that these afflictions, they don't cause Heman to stop crying out to the Lord. Look at verse 9. He, he keeps processing his pain in his relationship with the Lord. I think that's so key. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I'm not going to stop. I spread out my hands to you. Heman doesn't have any trouble being honest with God, and he repeatedly cries out to the Lord for help. Every day I call out to you. In other words, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to quit on you, God. I'm not going to give up on our relationship just because I'm going through this pain, just because I don't hear you responding. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep crying out. I'm going to keep calling out to you, keep asking for you to help me in my struggle. I've got no one else to turn to. You ever feel like that sometimes? Who else am I going to go to? You are my God, and I'm going to pour out my struggles before you until you answer me, until... Till you show up, till you ease this burden, this pain. By the way, I see a lot of parallels here with the book of Job, if you've read through the book of Job. And those of you who have, just think for a second. Did God ever explain to Job why he did the things that he did? Did he ever tell him? No, he didn't. If you remember the book of Job, it starts where, you know, God and Satan has this little cosmic wager about whether or not Job would be faithful if God took away all of his benefits, if Satan was allowed to persecute him. So God says, all right, well, go ahead, Satan. And Satan believes that if he takes away all of those blessings, then Job's going to drop God like a hot rock. But 
Job stays faithful, even though the blessings were removed. He, he didn't stay quiet <laughs> about what he was going through. But he was faithful. His wife told him to curse God and die, but Job refused. He stayed faithful. And after all that, after 38 chapters of philosophizing about why God did what he did, you know what God said at the end of that book when he showed up? He finally answered Job, but the answer was not what he was expecting. You know what God said to Job at the end of that book? He said, where were you, Job, when I made the hippopotamus? That's what God says. Where were you, Job, when I made the Leviathan? Where were you when I set the foundations of the earth? As if, you know, Job, you can't understand the depth of what I'm doing here. He never lets him know what his little wager, his little cosmic battle with Satan. And at the end of all that, Job says, you know what? You're right, God. He says, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? All that to say this, God doesn't always tell us why we suffer in this world. He doesn't answer all of our questions. He doesn't clear away all the confusion. And even if he did, even if he tried to, sometimes we're of such small account, we can't even understand his purpose in all of it. We've got to trust him. Our minds sometimes are too limited to understand what he's doing. We have to trust him. We have to believe him, even through our pain. And praise God, we have this from the New Testament. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Write this down as number three. Speaking of Job, this is the place where Job had to get to. When darkness dominates, give up your need for rational answers. Give up your need for rational answers. This might be the hardest lesson for some of you in this room to learn. And I say that, I'm your pastor, and I know most of you here. So, uh, and we have here at Harvest Decatur, we have a good number of engineers. We have a good number of scientists here at Harvest Decatur, and that's good. I love engineers. I love scientists. And I, like you, a lot of times we like to process our life and our world in Aristotelian categories. You know what I mean by that? With syllogisms. If A is to B and B is to C, then A equals C. Everything's nice and tidy and everything works and everything makes sense. Right? Can I get an amen on that, engineers? But what do you do when those, and, and, and by the way, I, there's, there's a place for a rational approach to God. I think that's good. And I think there's a lot of rationale for why we serve God and why we love him, why the gospel exists. But, but what do you do when, when life eludes those rational explanations? What do you do then? Look at what Hemant says, and, and I'll just tell you, you know, Hemant, he, he's a rational guy. He's a sage. He's trying to make sense of what's going on here. And listen to the logic of what he says in verse 10. Here's this question. Do you work wonders for the dead? Question mark, God. Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Abaddon is another Hebrew word for, for death or destruction or, or the end. 
Are your wonders known in the darkness, he asks, verse 12, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? In other words, here's what he's asking. Why let me die, Lord? Why let me suffer these things? Why don't you show up? Why don't you do? And then I can praise you. And then I can tell people about how awesome you are. This isn't rational. This doesn't make sense. Take away my suffering. Don't let me die so that I can worship you, so that I can praise you, so that I can tell other people about what you've done in my life. That's, that's rational, isn't it? You know, I remember last year when, speaking of rational, when Nabil Qureshi was dealing with stomach cancer, I remember on his YouTube channel, he was asking people to pray, pray that God would heal him and free him from this disease because he had people in his family, Muslims and people in the Muslim community that were saying, you know, the reason that you have cancer, the reason that you're dying right now is because you left the Muslim faith and you became a Christian. And so you are cursed and you're going to die in your cancer because of that. And, and I remember him calling Christians to pray, pray that God would heal me, pray that God would show them, pray that God would use my healing to lead people to Christ. That's rational, isn't it? Wouldn't that have been great? And even if it wasn't to prove them wrong, it's so that he could continue living to be this, this great Christian apologist to speak for God and to, to lead other Muslims to Christ. But God didn't heal him. And he died of cancer. 34 years old, this brilliant, successful Christian apologist. He died. And I don't, I don't know why. God didn't answer that prayer. That's part of this psalm is sometimes you have to just put that in the hands of God when you don't understand what he's doing. Here's some more questions that the psalmist asked, verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Here's this guy. He just keeps praying. He just keeps coming to the Lord every day, every morning. O Lord, verse 14. Why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from, face from me? Why, Lord, why? This isn't logical. Why not show up and make everything okay? Don't you love me? Why are you hiding your face from me? Why aren't you answering my prayers? Some of you might be saying right now, boy, Pastor Tony must be depressed. Well, something must be wrong with him. He's must be, he must be going through a really hard time right now. You know, actually, I, I'm not. <laughs> I'm actually in a really good place right now. Sunday and I, we just bought a house, and we're not living like nomads anymore. Croatia just made the semifinals of the World Cup. <laughs> you know, the U.S. stinks at soccer. They're lamentable, but at least I got Croatia. No, I'm in, I'm in relatively good health. Sonia's in relatively good health. Alistair, too. Our cats are doing good. <laughs> you know, I, I have a church that I love. I have a job that I love. It's, it's good, right? I, this is not coming out of the depth of my own sorrow right now. I'm not going through a Psalm 88 period right now. So you might ask, well, why preach this Psalm then, Tony? Because life's not always that way. And just because I'm going through a good phase right now, that doesn't mean every person in this room is there. There might be somebody going through a Psalm 88 issue right now. And just because I'm going through a pretty good stage right now in life, that doesn't mean I haven't had my Psalm 88 moments. And that doesn't mean that things couldn't turn on a dime with one diagnosis or one tragedy 
And so what do we do when life isn't cheery and happy, when we're struggling with despair and depression? How do we process that? I really appreciated what uh, Paul Roberts shared last week. I told him as much. He's thankful for the way he worked through Psalm 70 and so transparently just revealed his own struggles in life and what he had been through. And I actually told him, I, you know, I admire how transparent you are sometimes when you preach. I, tell him, you know, I told him, I'm afraid sometimes to be that transparent because if you really knew the depths of my heart, I, I'm afraid you wouldn't want me to be your pastor anymore. If you knew how much I struggled sometimes, but, but I'm going to try to share with you at least a Psalm 88 moment in my life, okay? This is my attempt to be a little more like Paul Roberts, so brace yourself. <laughs> I remember vividly about 11 years ago, and I just graduated from seminary. Things were going good. I was accepted into a PhD program at Trinity. My son was just born. Sonia was stepping down from her job at uh, Northern Trust where she was working as an accountant. I had just been offered a job as an associate pastor in Chicago and things were looking great, kind of like right now. So, you know, and in about a week's time, things went in the toilet. The church that had offered me that position reneged on that job. Uh, the week that I was supposed to start, this was after Sonia had already stepped away from her job. I uh, failed an entrance exam to my, for my PhD program, and so my, my future there was in jeopardy. And I remember my 29th birthday, falling on my face before the Lord, crying out, why God? And it was more harsh than that. It was something like this, I've done everything you want me to do. That I, that I think I could do. I've given my life to serve you in ministry and this is how I'm repaid. Why are you doing this? Why am I enduring this? Anybody ever prayed a prayer like that on your face before the Lord? And I felt like a failure and I was broken. Now there's a happy ending to that story that I am not gonna share with you right now because it took about a year of suffering through that trial. And the reason I'm not going to share that happy ending with you is because sometimes there's things in life that don't have a happy ending. Not on this side of eternity. Sometimes children die. Sometimes mothers miscarry. Sometimes criminals get off with horrible crimes. Sometimes terrorists kill innocent victims. Sometimes totalitarian regimes in our world oppress their people. And there's nothing for us to do in those moments but lament and cry and ask God why and cry out to him from the depth of our pain and trust that the God of our salvation will sort out all the hurts, all the pain, all the injustices in our world on the other side of eternity. Speaking of injustice, I just finished reading a book called They Say We Are Infidels by Mindy Bells. Mindy Bells is a reporter for World Magazine, one of my heroes, great godly woman, brave woman. She spent the last 20 years of her life traveling to 
Iraq and Syria, reporting on persecuted Christian minorities in those countries. And some of the things that she records in that book are absolutely heartbreaking and infuriating. Muslims persecuting Christians, governments, including our own, ignoring and marginalizing Christian minorities, ethnic cleansing, rape, murder, torture. Why, God? Why? Why? Rise up and defend your people. I kept wanting to pray that and scream that as I was reading that book. Why not protect my brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are suffering? Oh, Lord, verse 14, I wanted to pray this on their behalf. Why do you cast their soul away? Why do you hide your face from them? Look at verse 14 with me, verse 15. This is the prayer that those persecuted Christians in Iraq and Syria pray. This is not my prayer. This is their prayer. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assault destroys me. Verse 17. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness, darkness, darkness. Okay, this is where my task as a preacher gets really hard. Here's what I want to do. I want to just smooth over all of these hard things and just kind of wrap this sermon up in a nice little bow and give it to you and maybe utter a few platitudes and rationalizations for why things happen the way they do and everybody goes out of here feeling good about themselves and it's all tidy and it's all nice and neat. But I need to resist that temptation right now because sometimes life is not like that. And sometimes the only thing that you can do is hurt and grieve. Sometimes you've got to hurt. And what does the Bible tell us about those who hurt and grieve and weep? It tells us to weep with those who weep and to hurt with those who hurt. Martin Marty, who's a church history professor, retired church history professor at the University of Chicago, he said this once about Psalm 88. He said, whoever tries to devise from the scripture a philosophy of life in which everything turns out all right in the end, at least on this side of eternity, will have to begin by tearing this page, Psalm 88, right out of the Bible. You know, I think that's why I, I loathe the prosperity gospel so much and the, what they preach. Because, you know, if you're suffering, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you're not rich, it's because you've been unfaithful in some way. And I, I just, just take that theology to its logical conclusion and you think to yourself, well, what do you do when you die? What, do you, what, what about when you have a terminal disease and you're going to die? How do you process that theologically? They don't have a category for that. They don't have a category for suffering. They don't have a category for hardship. And I praise God that there is a way in which, as the Bible shows us here, to suffer with dignity, to suffer in a relationship with God, even to go into your death with this close, intimate relationship with the Lord and to process your pain. Let me ask you, Harvest Decatur, just press you a little bit on this point. 
Are you ready for the process of dying right now? If you had to go through that, you might say, yes, sir, Pastor Tony, I'm ready. I'm a blood-bought, card-carrying Christian. Death is nothing to me. It's just passing into the afterlife. I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord forever and ever and ever. It's going to be eternal bliss. I'm ready. Well, amen, hallelujah. I believe that. Trust me, I believe that. But that's not what I asked you. I didn't say, are you ready for death? Are you ready for a process of dying? Are you ready for a diagnosis of cancer or Alzheimer's? Are you ready to endure suffering leading to your death like Lou Gehrig's disease, like my mother-in-law is suffering and dying from right now? Are you ready for that? You might say, no. But when that time comes, God will give me the grace. Amen. Me too. I heard a story this last week about that same professor I quoted earlier, Martin Marty. And when his wife Elsa was dying, Dr. Marty used to read a psalm to her every night, actually at midnight before she would take her medication. And she was dying from this terminal disease. That was his, his habit every day to go and to read a psalm to her. And eventually, reading through the psalms, he got to Psalm 88. And he decided to skip it because he didn't think his wife could handle it as she was dying. And his wife noticed that he had skipped that psalm. And she asked him, why did you skip Psalm 88? And he said, I'm not sure you could handle it. And he said, to be honest, I'm not sure I can handle it. But she said, no, read it. I want you to read it. So I read it, and he got to those lines that say, I cry out in the night before you, for my soul is full of troubles. You have put me in the depths of the pit, and the region's dark and deep. And after he read it, his wife said, I needed that. I needed that psalm right now to process my pain, to process this struggle with death in my relationship with the Lord. Are you ready for a process of dying, harvest decatur? Are you ready to endure a period of intense suffering like him and the Israelite? I'm not sure I am, but yes, I pray that God gives me the grace and I praise God that he has given me Psalm 88 and other laments to help us process pain and suffering, the kind that we will inevitably experience on this side of eternity. Close with this, and it's the only hopeful thing I'll say about this psalm. This psalm is a very hopeless song in a lot of ways, and, but thankfully it's not the only part of the scripture, right? I mean, I'm thankful that Psalm 88 is in the scriptures, but I'm thankful it's not the only scripture that God gave us, right? And... You know, when the psalmist closes this passage with the statement about darkness, you have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. 
I believe that in those last few verses, there's something profound, even messianic going on. In fact, throughout church history, many people have read this psalm as if Christ was speaking to us in the Anglican tradition. They use this psalm for Good Friday and link it to Christ and his death upon the cross. And I understand why that, I do think there is something profound going on here, something messianic. And here's why I say this. Because there is somebody who has experienced ultimate darkness in this life, but it wasn't Haman the Ezraite. There is someone who experienced the full wrath of God and lamented, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it wasn't David. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't anyone in the Old Testament. There is someone who entered into this world of darkness, not just to suffer it and endure it, but ultimately to defeat it. Isaiah prophesied concerning that person. He said, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them, light has shone. John in his gospel says it this way, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Who is this destroyer of darkness? Do you know him? Let me just cut to the chase. It's Jesus. His name is Jesus. And he experienced the truest darkness, the deepest darkness, the deepest wrath of God, so that we might escape the clutches of darkness and enter into his marvelous light. Actually, Paul Tripp disagrees with me. I said that this is a hopeless psalm, Psalm 88, but he says... Psalm 88 is, in fact, a hopeful psalm. He says Psalm 88 is a hopeful psalm precisely because God included it in his hope-filled book. You can face the darkest realities of your life because your Father is sovereign and Jesus is your closest friend. So here's my last, my last exhortation to you this morning. Write this down under number four. When darkness dominates, take up the remedy for ultimate darkness. When darkness dominates, take up the remedy for ultimate darkness. The defeater of darkness. Do you remember what happened in the ninth hour just before Jesus died? Matthew says this, Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ is the Savior who endured ultimate darkness to bring you into the light of salvation. He is our hope. He is our light. He is our refuge. Even in the midst of the deepest darkness, Do you know him? Do you believe? Jesus is the only way, by the way, to escape eternal darkness. Let's pray.
Lord, I don't know where every person is in this room. But God, if there is anyone here right now who is going through a Psalm 88 issue, God, I pray that your comfort right now would meet them where they're at. That they would know even in the midst of despair and sadness that you love them. That you have saved their soul. That their struggle in this world is temporary. And life eternal with you is forever. God, I pray that you would help us to be a church that weeps with those who weep. Who helps ease the burden of those who are hurting. God, I, if there's anybody in this room right now who is dealing with satanic temptations to take their own life, to commit suicide. God, would you expose the deceit of the devil who wants to mar the image of God that we are created in? God, defeat those lies with truth. Help them to see, Lord, your love for them. Help them to process their grief and their sadness and their depression through their relationship with you, God. And Lord, we, we praise you and we thank you that darkness has been defeated in our lives. Even though we experience it on this side of eternity, there will come a day when all we will be exposed to is the light of your truth and the light of your glory. And we thank you, Lord, for enduring darkness, for defeating darkness, so that we might be saved. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.